0: I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And And we're we're The the Trade Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. In this episode, we recorded in front of a live audience here at CSIS. The crowd was made up of trade professionals from the Association of Women in International Trade and the LGBT Professionals in International Trade. Joining me and the Trade Guys were two trade legends, Barbara Wiesel and Marjorie Chorlins. We discuss auto tariffs, bilateral trade agreements, and what's going on with the U.S.-China deal all on this episode of The Trade Guys. Hi, everybody. Welcome everybody to the CSIS. I especially want to welcome um, our guests from Wit and Gat. It's so wonderful to have all of you here today um, for this live uh, recording of of the trade guys. We don't get to do live recordings every month, but when we do, we you know we try to keep Bill and Scott restrained. But today we're surrounded by trade legends, so I think they will be restrained but we, we have, also are alive when we do the regular pod class podcast yeah that's, no <laughs> that's, that's true
1: that's sometimes true. quite difficult but
0: yeah. we but literally today we're, we're surrounded by trade legends we have barbara weisel here barbara is a managing director at rock creek global advisors currently but before that she was u.s chief negotiator for the 12 country tpp that's trans-pacific partnership deals from its inception in 2008 through uh its signing in 2016. That's a big deal. Um, you will have her bio and the notes. In addition to that, she also served as Assistant USTR for Southeast Asia and the Pacific. Uh, Marjorie Chorlins is also here. She's Vice President for European Affairs at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, um, where she develops policy and executes programs related to trade and investment in Europe. She's also the Executive Director of the U.S. UK Business Council. She served under Senator John C. Danforth, mm-hmm. one of the really good guys. Mm-hmm. Republican from Missouri it Just tells
2: you how old I am
0: well he was a great guy and and you don't look old at all and we're you know for our, our listeners yeah. out there Thank you, know, you Scott and Bill are looking you know <laughs> but we sound but young Andrew. they sound young. that, that this is true <laughs> it's the advantage of radio or podcasts you know nobody can see in case you didn't know WIT is the Association of Women in International Trade, and GAT is LGBT Professionals in International Trade in DC, so we're really happy to have you all here with us today, and we're gonna talk about trade, and we're gonna talk about some really interesting issues. One of the issues that we all have in common uh, to talk about is is the Section 232 tariffs and what's happening with that. Why don't we kick it off and kick it around? Because, I mean, Barbara, from your point of view, you're looking at it, I guess, from US-Japan. Um, Marjorie, you're looking at it, US-EU. There's mm-hmm. been news this week. The chairman of Toyota uh, was out there saying, uh, look out, the Europeans, even though President Trump had assured the trade whisperer Jean-Claude Juncker that we were okay. Doesn't seem like we're okay. What's going on?
2: Ah, well This is
0: Marjorie for you guys listening out there.
2: This week the administration this week, right? The administration put out their report, or I should say well, they didn't Commerce, put it out. Commerce <laughs> sent the report to the White House, I, I should say the
0: secret two thirty two report that the US Commerce Department did. I don't right, that they have yet to put out so, they reported it to the White House.
2: Right. Correct. So okay. we don't know what's actually in the report. We have a surmise that the report Um, may well call for the imposition of uh, duties on imported autos and auto parts from a number of our major trading partners. Um, The Europeans are especially nervous about this, uh, the Germans in particular. And it tells you something that back in July when uh, Presidents Trump and Juncker sat together and negotiated, quote-unquote, the statement that they did, um, that that the language talked about lowering non-auto industrial tariffs. And I mean the administration specifically called for wanted to include that language non-auto so that they could hold open the possibility at a future date of possibly imposing auto tariffs. Now the the agreement also has, <clears throat> excuse me, sort of a ceasefire clause that says, as long as neither side imposes new tariffs, um, we'll continue to talk and see where we can make, make some progress. Well, um, the Europeans are nervous. There's no question about it. Um, and Cecilia Malmstrom has said, she said it when she was here last month, that Brussels has a list of uh, retali- counter-retaliatory measures uh, that they are ready to impose at a moment's notice. So their expectation is that these tariffs are coming at some point. Um, and yeah. I think, you know, we, we've obviously, the Chamber's weighed in, obviously, um, strongly opposed to these, as we did on the steel and aluminum tariffs. Um, but I think we just have to assume there's a real possibility. Uh, if the President get it, gets impatient with the pace of the U.S.-EU talks or the U.S.-Japan talks, um, you know, or so something else… You, you don't else. believe
3: him when he says we're not going to do it as long as we're talking?
2: I believe him up until he decides he wants to do something different.
3: So you mentioned all those groups
0: that are nervous. I'm nervous too, you know why I'm nervous? Why? I drive an Audi and my lease is up in a year. That's, and really people are gonna really be nervous and, and a lot of people drive Japanese cars too, right? Is it a similar situation?
4: Yeah, the Japanese are similarly concerned about the possibility that the president will go ahead and impose <laughs> the tariffs. I think that most people believe him when he says, I don't really want to impose these tariffs. I would like to use them as a threat Mm -hmm. and to keep them as leverage on Japan and the EU to ensure that we conclude these negotiations and that they will concede to the demands that we have. I think that most people recognize there's no support for for 232 in the U.S. There is no stakeholder that supports the president going forward with this. I think even within the president's own cabinet, there's not significant support well, Barbara, for this.
1: That's the oddity of this, yeah. is that at least with the steel and aluminum 232, there was a constituency. Exactly. the domestic producers were actually interested in in a a bit of pricing ability. Scott, you're talking about the domestic steel producers. Domestic steel and aluminum producers, yes. Aluminum was actually less charged up about it because they have an integrated North American business. But that aside, there was at least a constituency for it, and there there was an argument about the weakness of the industry and how it might benefit from capital infusion if prices were higher. So at least that kind of held together. On the Auto 232, I think the President of the United States is the only person who thinks this is a good idea. I mean, in the testimony of the Commerce Department Department. it was strongly opposed by every group and frankly in my mind it's just a complete misapprehension of the way the industry works it's as if it's like we've talked before the president is an 80s guy walking through the 21st century and
3: he sees No, he's a 50s guy
1: Well, oh, he's 80, a 50s 80, guy 80, okay either way he's th- got a 50s haircut you got a, american cars made by an american <laughs> industry uh, no you don't you have an 85 million car global market you have a dozen or so Globally competitive companies, two of whom happen to be U.S. headquartered, okay. And most of them see the world as a, glo- as a as an economic unit. They they compete in across markets, and they have network suppliers, and it's a matrix, not an island chain. And uh, so uh, it, it's one of these things that the fact that everyone has given it such a negative review, uh, I hope it makes an impact. We we don't know because we haven't but seen the report.
3: Don't you think? Well, don't you guys think that this is really just leverage to get voluntary restraints or quotas? It's not about tariffs. It's about getting them to voluntary restraints. I absolutely think that's and what it's about. Do you think the Japanese will do that?
4: The Japanese have said the same as the EU has said, that they will not accept voluntary restraints. The negotiations haven't started, so we'll see how things develop. I'm, the, the Japanese have said that they are firmly opposed to quantitative restrictions. They will not accept them, and that's
2: their position going in. You know, yeah, I, think, I, I think we'll
4: see the way that this plays out.
2: I would just echo that and say the Europeans have been very clear that they won't accept any sort of artificial um, uh, constraints like that. Having said that, you know, the Europeans also said that they wouldn't come to the negotiating table if the steel and aluminum tariffs were still in place. And lo and behold, they're coming to the negotiating tar- table, and those tariffs are- still This is pleased. what you
3: said earlier. They won't until they do. Yeah, until they do. Is, is that the same, the same with same agriculture?
1: Because the uh, the initial deal in the Rose Garden was no agriculture. And I think uh, somebody in the administration talked to Chairman Grassley <laughs> and recalibrated.
2: Um, yeah. Look, I have heard from people who were in the room when that statement was negotiated who have diametrically opposed views about what was said and what, what was ultimately put on the paper.
1: That's a real confidence builder.
2: Yeah, um, so look, I mean, it, it's it's not there now. The Europeans have made it clear that agriculture is not on the table. Um, the US has said it has to be on the table. But I think even before that, you know, there's been this sort of mismatch from the outset of these talks ever since last summer, right? There's a desire on the one hand to do something quickly uh, to generate some real results really fast like on soybeans and LNG exports and things like that but where they've actually decided to focus much of their attention is on regulatory cooperation which is by definition not going to yield results quickly so there's ar- there's already this this um, this disconnect and I think that's one of the reasons why uh, frankly I'm worried that these negotiations are gonna, stall before they get started.
3: Is the announcement the president's going to pay a state visit to Japan at the end of May going to accelerate the process? Is he going to want to win something while he's there? And and can this be finished by then?
4: They haven't agreed on a date for a first round. And that first round is not likely to occur until at least the end of April, if not the beginning of May. So no, they cannot conclude by the time of a state visit in May. They'll be lucky if they have one round by then.
0: Let me read you all a statistic. This kind of puts it in perspective for the United States. Japanese auto companies have 24 manufacturing plants and 44 research and development and design centers in 19 states in the United States, and they directly employ 92,000 people. Why isn't that something that we got to get done right away if you're President Trump? That's a lot of jobs. The Japanese cars are made in the United States. European cars are made in the United States. We've talked about this on this podcast. I mean, BMW's largest plant
3: is in where? In South Carolina. Uh, and, uh, and Daimler's is in, is in Alabama. Right. And if you watch, one of the more interesting characters in this episode has been the new the new senator from Alabama Senator Jones yes uh, who was recently you know he was filled a, a vacancy so he was elected in what 2017 I guess and I, I remember I, I had occasion to meet him while he was campaigning and he ran on a classic Democratic pro-union organized labor trade plan but who is leading the fight against the car tariffs right now uh, Doug Jones Wow because they've got Thousands and thousands of workers in Huntsville who make and export uh, Mercedes, I guess it is. And do you know how many
0: Mercedes they import to Bethesda, Maryland? (laughs) I
3: don't know, Andrew a lot it's a lot okay i can tell you <laughs> and bmw imports a lot well, you see the, pre- export, th- you know, the president exports. would say too many yes. he doesn't like all those bmws and but and they're made in, in New York. But u.s but they're, but they're, workers yeah, yeah they're u.s workers they're made in america
0: they're great cars the parts come from america they're 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 u.s jobs for every one of those jobs Um, At the actual plant there's industries that have and service
3: jobs that have sprouted up around in those communities So like what are we talking about? here? Well, you know, there's an irony here, too Because that is a Bob Lighthizer should take credit for that That is a result of what he did in the 80s. He's a managed trade guy One of the things he did in the 80s was get a voluntary restraint on the Japanese on exports How did they respond? They invested in the United States so this so that's is his fault. That's a good thing, fault.
0: right? So it's a good thing, right? Well,
2: no, I don't think that, he appreciates the work re- re- that he did. No, they're trying trying to rerun that same playbook now.
0: Yes. Is that the play? I mean, is that what the play is?
2: Well, if you listen to what the president says, I mean, and, and what Bob says, I mean, the idea is to try to bring back as much of the manufacturing here as possible, here. right? Okay. And that just completely overlooks the fact, as Scott said, that we're talking about global supply chains, not just for the auto sector but for just about every sector.
0: So we're gonna be bombarded in these next two years by a lot of campaign rhetoric. And a lot of it's gonna center around working and US jobs and the future of work. How does all of this play into it? Scott, what do you think? Well,
1: uh, look, I think that the president is going to be anxious for concrete deliverables in any negotiation he launches. That was true in the USMCA. It was true even even with the renegotiation of the Korea FTA. And uh, when it comes to Europe and Japan, they're both top five trading partners. They're important markets. Uh, But getting quick results is going to be a real difficult trick. Uh, As Bill commented earlier, uh, the president does not want to go to Cleveland, Ohio, and say, look at the wonderful agreement on conformity assessment I got from the Europeans. (laughs) That's really not a campaign theme. Uh, I can
0: tell you, my wife and her whole family are from Cleveland, Ohio, and nobody knows what conformity assessment is. The president probably wouldn't say
1: it.
2: (laughs) (laughs) But, But you know what's interesting? If you look at what, again, the July statement between Juncker and Trump what were some of the sectors that were identified in that statement? Soybeans on the one hand, right, and um, LNG exports, right? Those were two areas where the Europeans committed uh, to buy more, even though, you know, the commission doesn't buy soybeans, but they committed anyway to see more European uh, imports of U.S. soybeans. So, okay, so the Europeans very cleverly, within weeks of having uh, agreed to that deal, announced that indeed their imports of US soybeans had increased and that they were making strides to increase um, imports of US LNG as well. But when you hear Ambassador Sondland talk about it, um, those are ambassador the to US the ambassador th- to the, the EU, EU. Um, he will tell you that that's window dressing, quote unquote. So if, if that's what's in the deal or the, what they agreed last summer, and that's considered window dressing. You have to ask yourself, what is it that the administration is really looking for Sounds in this negotiation? Sounds like the goalposts are
1: moving and moving pretty fast, which I'm, I'm sure they will for Japan as well.
4: Well, I mean, I think there's some very basic underlying questions here. You know, normally when you're negotiating a trade agreement, you're not trying to deal with a bilateral trade deficit. You're trying to open so, markets yeah. and and create fair competition between two parties, two countries. You're not trying to deal with a trade deficit. So that, in and of itself, is, a, is the first question here of, of what is it we're trying to achieve. If you, if you say, you know, the president did make clear that he would like to see rapid results from this, and so the initial statements, both with the EU, also with Japan, suggested that these would be very narrow agreements that covered only goods and they could be done very quickly and they could show results and the trade deficit would decline and all good things would happen. Um, As it turns out, and for people who have been involved in trade negotiations and have had to work with Congress, you know it's much, much, much more complicated than that. And so, starting with none
1: of us know how to get an agreement passed without the Aggies.
4: So as soon as as, as <laughs> soon mean, as as soon as they started having discussions with okay. the Hill, it became clear we're not going to be able to do a narrow agreement. It's going to have to be comprehensive. Therefore, you have to go back to the EU, you have to go back to Japan, and you have to renegotiate the scope of negotiations before you even get to the table.
3: But doesn't this mean that the greatest deal maker in the world got played by Juncker and actually by Abe too? They played, got I, well. I what, did they, what did what did Juncker get? He got no agriculture and no tariffs while we're talking. That's what he wanted. What did we get? An agreement to talk and some soybeans.
2: Some soybeans and some LNG exports.
3: Abe gave him a golden golf club.
0: Well, Uh, that's... And and a nomination
3: for the Nobel Peace Prize.
0: (laughs) 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 Yes, the important
1: stuff.
2: No, I don't think he got played
4: by Abe. I think they both went into this thinking that they were going to get a quick agreement, and the reality turned out to be something quite different.
2: Well, and let's face it, as with the Europeans, nobody expected that they were going to come out with anything. The expectations for that meeting last July were so low that the fact that they—look, it took them a while to get out to the Rose Garden because they were in the back room basically trying to scribble together that agreement— um, nobody had done any advanced planning for it.
3: We experienced that here because Juncker was coming here to speak that afternoon. Oh. And he was, what, an hour and a quarter late because they were scribbling in the, behind the Rose Garden. Right. There's a technical term
0: for what he was when he got here. He was in a true schwitz. <laughs> That's, that, that means sweat in Yiddish for those of you who don't know. But l- let's talk about Abe and the president for a second. Don't they have a pretty good relationship, actually? I mean, President Trump is very popular in Japan. Um, for a variety of reasons, whether it's North Korea, whether it's the relationship. Abe was the first visit to the United States as when President Trump was president. They were uh, famously visited Mar-a-Lago. Now President Trump's going to be visiting um, Japan in May. Won't they just be able to hash out a deal while together while they're there?
4: I don't think so. I mean, I, I don't think that you can expect anything that Abe has provided Trump or any of the goodwill that's been built up to provide any dividends to Japan. I mean, this is a very transactional president. They will meet, the president is there for very specific reasons for the enthronement and to do various other things while he's in Japan, but I don't think that that necessarily translates into any goodwill toward Japan in terms of what they might do on the trade front. They're in completely separate cones and until the Japanese are prepared to capitulate to the demands of the U.S., I don't think the president is going to give them anything.
0: And the Japanese made pretty clear today that they're not.
4: Or at least Toyota did.
0: Toyota made clear. The well, look, I, I, w- I wouldn't
1: minimize the ability of uh, political skills of Prime Minister Abe. Look, he is, at this point, he was very long serving, and he is the most popular of the G7 leaders by far. In his home country so you look at any any sort of domestic polling in the g7 he's far and away the most popular he has done and he's done an outstanding job at picking up the pieces of TPP and bringing it together when the US pulled out so this is a this is a man who has some pretty impressive leadership credentials and public support Uh, so I would not I would not minimize the chance of, of a good meeting of some sort knowing knowing that our president wants a good meeting and that the the definition of good can get very flexible when it comes to President Trump. But I'm not about to be disappointed with Japan anytime soon.
3: It's almost always a good meeting. Yes. No matter what happens. Yeah, but Bill, doesn't President Trump need some wins right now? Well, I think so, although he probably could use wins a year from now closer to the election.
0: Right. The question is does he need to lay the groundwork now for some wins a year from now?
3: Well, yes, and if if you're both right that these negotiations are going to last a while, it will play into that. We were talking today about uh, the China negotiation and the timing of that. That's on a fast track. We're nearing maybe an end game or well, not the end, but this phase uh, end game. But it occurred to me, so so they reach an agreement in March, say, sometime, because the two presidents will meet. If there's an agreement, it'll be the greatest one ever. You're talking about the two presidents, Trump and Xi Jinping. Yes, and then there'll be a market bump. The market will be very excited. Nobody will read the agreement. Just the fact that there is one will mean, good, we're not going to have a trade war. We're we're not going to die tomorrow. (laughs) We're not not dying tomorrow. Uh, And then what will happen, I think, over time is people will read it and make a decision about whether it's any good. And my guess is it won't be as good as the president says it is. And then it either is enforced and or it's not. And then there's the question of whether the Chinese will implement it anyway. Right. And so a year from now, he could not be looking quite as good as he's going to look next month because the agreement could end up being uh, you it's know, going to a, take a disaster, lot of very a lot closer work to the election. election. He looks good only if it's a good agreement and the Chinese honor it. Two long shots, I think. I and mean,
4: depending what the enforcement provisions are in what they agree.
3: But enforcement is a, is an indication of failure. You know, the enforcement mechanism will be if you don't if you don't do it, we're going to impose more tariffs or we're going to, you know, restore the ones we took off if they take them off or we're going to increase the ones that are that we kept on. That's in a way a sign of failure and it's a sign of trade war.
2: Well, and I think in the case of Europe, um, we have to keep in mind that Uh, The Europeans are having their own elections in May. They're going to have a new European Parliament, and then we'll have a new commission um, in place, hopefully, by early December. But, you know, the administration is now going to be confronted with um, what is bound to be um, a less transatlantic-friendly European Parliament on the one hand and a commission that's going to come in potentially with a different set of priorities. Now, this commission has been doing, the European Commission has been doing a lot to get as far down the road as they can with a number of these trade negotiations, and the U.S. is the one that's sort of notably left behind. But I think that again, the idea of um, of seeing quick wins, um, unless you're prepared to accept a handful of transactional deals, like more soybean sales or um, certifying soybeans for use in biofuels or increasing the U.S. portion of the quota on non-hormone beef imports. I mean, unless you're prepared to accept those as, you know, good results that you can then turn around and sell, however you package them, the White House is going to be disappointed.
3: At what point do you think this commission runs out of gas and runs into the the fact that they're leaving and, and really can't, are not in a position to negotiate effectively anymore?
5: Well, to
2: hear um, Commissioner Malmstrom tell it, um, she's going to be there right up until the 11th hour negotiating just as hard as she can. Practically speaking, I think it becomes a lot more difficult for people... By the end of May, early June. After right?
3: the parliament election. Yeah.
2: Because there's going to be jockeying then around who becomes the commission president, and then you're going to be looking at how do you, you know, who ends up taking which portfolios. Um, there's, Their version
1: of the lame duck, basically.
2: Basically. And yeah. there's the summer yeah. holiday, and I mean, you know, so I would say. June is probably about as far as you can go with what I would consider to be substantive negotiations. So you don't
3: see this particular negotiation, given that it hasn't really started yet, getting being over with before all that happens?
2: I don't see how it can be.
3: And you don't see the Japan one being over very soon either? No,
4: and I just come back to so Scott's point. You know, I don't discount the possibility that President Trump and Prime Minister Abe have a good meeting when they meet. But when you're talking about will they be able to conclude a comprehensive deal not by May? Not
1: a chance. May, not a hope.
4: Not a chance. Is there is there some possibility of a gift? You know, the, the Japanese will purchase more soybeans or beef or whatever, LNG, maybe. Yeah. But
3: Going to run out of soybean right, soup right. <laughs> bu- i was in a conversation this morning was a whole bunch of military equipment
1: ah there you go Defe- defense procurement that's an easy alternative if you've got control of the budget scott
0: what's your prediction of what's going to happen with the china deal
1: the china deal will will first of all not happen march 1st it'll happen sometime a little bit later they've already signaled that uh, second it will be essentially coincident with the meeting of the two leaders In other words, I think uh, uh, Ambassador Lighthizer and his counterparty will get the shortlist hammered out, and then the bosses will settle it. The announcement will be favorable, and the substance will be fuzzy.
3: Part of it will be fuzzy. I think big market access package that won't be too fuzzy. It's the it's commitments the, on the structural the issues. Stuff? Intellectual that property, <laughs> structural
1: issues, uh, contestable markets more, is going to be very more than
3: More than cosmetic, but le- way less than we're asking for. Yeah. enforcement mechanism that uh, will be unilateral, which It'll the Chinese a won't like. We image. get to decide yes. if they're complying, yes. and if we decide that they're not, we get to act unilaterally and they can't do anything about it. That's what yeah. we will insist on. That's That would be Sorry. a special.
0: Do you like it when it's a little fuzzy? Because then you can study more and you can write more about it and <laughs> you can talk more about it. I'm being totally serious. Like, do you like it when it's a little fuzzy?
3: No, because it's not a good outcome. Yeah. Because Because all it does is create more uncertainty
5: and, and, and leave people up in that, the air.
2: Business hates that uncertainty. Business yeah. hates
0: uncertainty. The market hates uncertainty.
1: Your choice is with some ambiguity, and you and you sort of roll along and muddle through, or you have precision and lawyers and failure. So,
4: Well, it you know, could be that they continue the discussions beyond
3: that the could, time. That the, could happen the as well. Happens. It's another way to
1: right. sort of muddle through.
3: I think that what will happen is— and. and I think Scott alluded to it. The president has sort of decreed the end game, which is that it will be in a meeting between the two presidents. It won't be in a meeting between the two trade representatives.
4: Only he can do it.
3: Only he can do it. He's become his own trade representative anyway. So he makes beautiful deals, I hear. That's what he tells everybody. So the job of Lighthizer and and Liu He is to tee that up, narrow the issues, Mm -hmm. as you said, uh, probably to low single digits. So Trump can remember them. And I think that the most likely one is uh, what will happen to the tariffs. Yes. Because the Chinese are going to say, if we agree to all this stuff, whether it's big or small. Tariffs go away. Tariffs have to go away. Yeah. And Trump will say, no, 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 no. I don't. I won't increase them. Yes. But they'll stay. They'll keep the current ones to see what you're going to do. That, I think, ends up being resolved by the presidents. And uh, my guess is that uh, Trump will fold. Trump will fold. That's the panel. But he
2: hasn't folded on Canada mm-hmm. and Mexico. He didn't make good on that promise.
3: He folded on the negotiation. Look at what happened to all the poison pills. The, the endgame, poison pills disappeared. Fair point. Kind of, uh, but he definitely is, the tariffs folded are still on there. Korea.
2: The tariffs are still there.
3: The tariffs are still there. And that was a case of him overruling Bob, really. Is any of this good for the United States of America? Well, he would say yes, because it's bringing jobs and uh, production and manufacturing back here. I don't think that's empirically accurate yet, although, c- brief commercial, one of the things the Shoal Chair is doing is a report on the impact of rules of origin on supply chains, using NAFTA autos as a case study. And one of the things that will probably happen with those rules of origin is a short-term bump of some production being returned, but long-term, the industry will be less globally competitive than it is now, and cars will be more expensive. So you pay a price, but will there be more car jobs here in in the short run? Probably. So it depends on what you're counting. But Andrew, you can't deny it's been good for the trade guys. it been great for the trade guys. <laughs> There's no question it's been great for the trade guys. Trade is a great business trade. because no problems right, are ever here. solved. Right. And so it's permanent lifetime employment. employment.
2: Just the fact that people talk about trade nowadays is great. He oh.
3: is making people think about trade, which is a good thing. Right. The problem he has to wrestle with is if you look at poll data, they're thinking about trade, but they're not coming out where he wants them to. Exactly. And I think this is going to play out a little bit in the next election, although I don't think it's a decisive factor in any of them. People event. sure we're holding up a Barbara and I were talking about this before people during the
0: 2016 election a lot of people holding up a lot of signs about trade and you know that's one of the reasons why we started the trade guys we wanted to talk about trade in ways that everyone could understand and so that we could bring out some of these issues to have a better informed policy
3: community and a better informed public we have competition as some of you know the peterson institute does one of these too and i was talking to the who is the peterson institute the Peterson Institute on international Oh yeah, for, you know, the, yeah that's right people up the street i'm asking <laughs> chad bowen chad 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 and, yes. and i was talking to nick lardy and we were discussing the differences between podcasts and uh, uh, we agreed that theirs is aimed at graduate students and ours is aimed at sixth graders. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, with all due respect to those of you that are out there, I mean, come on, uh, sixth graders. We have a well, high hey, school. maybe maybe we should uh, honor, we have a much
1: honor Woody Hayes the... and refer to Peterson Institute as the think tank up the street.
0: Yeah, like he always called Michigan that team up north. That's right. Well, and, and <laughs> he would never say the word. That's right. <laughs> so. That's right. There you go. Questions.
4: I'm Naomi Freeman. I'm a consultant with um, Sandler Travis and Rosenberg. One is. The recent appropriations deal that reopened the government did include um, improved exclusion process. Do you think that the smart lawyers in town could make enough exclusions that it kind of? obviates everything that's happening that you're describing on 232 and on 301 and, and on all that. Uh, and the other thing is, have you heard about the Chinese uh, electric vehicles that have just been authorized to come to the United States and will that change all these dynamics?
3: My former bureau, BIS, got $4.5 to fix this. It couldn't get worse, by the way. It's an it's really a classic government program at the moment. And in fairness to them, I, I think their mistake was they grossly underestimated the number of requests they were going to get. They were figuring five thousand, and they got fifty thousand, uh, and they simply were not equipped to deal with it, even under the best of circumstances. And I, I have a great fondness for the people that work there. They're they're good people, but it's simply a load that was uh, became unmanageable. I don't know if four and a half million is going to be enough to fix it. There's been some. Uh, Controversy about the process. There have been some steel companies, not all of them, incidentally, but some um, two in particular that have chosen to oppose virtually every virtually every request, mm-hmm. uh, and that has complicated the process. Because if there's opposition, then you have to spend a lot more time analyzing it than if there is no opposition, um, and so that is that has slowed it down, and it is also, I think. Cause some internal ferment in, inside the industry over whether that's the best strategy to pursue, and uh, there are cases where there really is no domestic production of the product, and there probably wouldn't be any domestic production of the product even if the exclusion were not granted. Uh, whether th- whether four and a half million dollars is enough to fix it, um, I don't know. I'm inclined to, I'm inclined to doubt it. But you know, the, the reality with things like this is it just leads to another equilibrium. You know, people will, make their, people will make their other plans. And if they can't get it one way, they'll either get it a different way or they'll make it out of some other product or they'll, in some cases, they're gonna go out of business. Not always happy endings.
1: With regard to electric cars, uh, I'll channel my racing buddies who say competition improves the breed. And I think that if you are serious about uh, electric vehicles as, a, as an important part of the U.S. fleet for, uh, the, for their carbon footprint reasons, and you don't want to subsidize them forever, as we have so far, Uh, then what you need is more competition. They may be great cars, they may be duds, okay? There's a lot of experimentation that goes on in markets. I note that uh, Consumer Reports withdrew their rating, uh, favorable rating on the Tesla Model 3 today because of reliability problems. So it's actually harder to make a car than it looks, uh, but more competition will make better cars at lower prices to please more consumers. So if whether it's, I, I happen to think Nissan uh, with the LEAF makes the best electric car that's actually a car today in terms of range, safety, performance, all those things. And the, the more competitors there are t, uh, in the field, the more likelihood innovation will accelerate and we'll, we'll get where, pe- where, where the consumer wants to be ultimately. If it's a Chinese company, fine. Full disclosure, we take no money from Nissan. Or the Chinese. You're okay with Chinese electric cars? You still have a national safety regulator. Yeah, I, I was okay with Japanese sports cars in the seventies. Right. Okay, a lot of guys wouldn't get with the Corvettes until they got waxed by a, a 240Z. Okay, right. so you know it's one of those things. These things, these things change. But but look, you have an American regulator. You have American safety standards. If they meet the standards, they ought to get national treatment. And now everybody wants a vintage 280zx oh they do
3: they want the new supra don't they and you
1: want, yeah the new supra is sold for
0: seven figures seven
3: figures no. the, the first one
0: the first one the trade lady alerted us to that right. question
5: so hi uh, lauren Shapiro from steptoe and johnson also on the board of get first of all thank you for having us this sure. has been incredibly enlightening um my question is for both barbara tell and senator
0: barbara. johnson we said hello <laughs>
5: um He's on my floor. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Good man. Yeah. I work for him. Oh, nice. Um, so, question for both uh, Barbara and Marjorie. Eventually, the uh, timeline for Trump to make a decision on the auto tariffs will run out. You know, in 90 days, he'll have to say yes or no. Uh, so, the question is what is your prediction with what happens at the end of that 90 days? Um, if he defers on auto tariffs and doesn't choose to impose them, what becomes the leverage, like the threat leverage at that point, and uh, what does that do for the outlook for each negotiations for the EU and Japan?
4: So I think the most likely scenario is that the president declares that autos are, um, you know, a threat to, to the US economy and, and national security, and that the administration decides it has to impose the tariffs, but that he's gonna determine that he will not go ahead, he will suspend them for those countries with which the U.S. is actively negotiating, Japan and the EU. And then he will hang them over, the sort of Damocles, over both of those negotiations for as long as they see fit.
2: Which is essentially what I had expected him to do with the steel and aluminum tariffs initially with the Europeans. Sort of say, I'm gonna oppose them, but I'm gonna take them off as long as we're talking. But that didn't work out. I think Barbara's absolutely right. I think that um, he he will get to that point. I guess, is he actually statutorily required at, night, at the end yes. well, of the day? Yes, he has to make yeah. a decision.
3: But he doesn't go to jail if he doesn't. Right. There's, there's no penalty. So there's been debate about this. Does he really have to do it in 90? And the statute, I think, says, it says he, 90. It says 90. But if he doesn't, nothing happens, right?
5: He's uh, required under the statute. It doesn't say what happens.
3: We can do
0: two. Lightning round.
5: Hi, my name is Ayumi Akiyama. I'm an intern for um, Simon Chair for Political Economy at CSIS. Um, My question for you is, um, so if the U.S.-China trade deal is successful or if there is an outcome, would that give us a hint for how the U.S.-Japan trade deal would proceed?
1: Thank you. I'm Paul and with the Norwegian Embassy. I would like uh, to hear your views. There are many countries in the world that are deeply concerned about the multilateral trading system, but it doesn't seem to be high on the agenda here in the US right now. Uh, do you have any views on
5: where we will be heading and what will happen to the WTO after December this year?
1: Now, quickly on your question, I think Japan and China are independent of one another and their independent political issues very interesting for the American people. Americans see J- Japan as fair traders and China as unfair traders.
3: The WTO question is a long, complicated one. I think the U.S. attitude, as near as I can tell, is not from a Lighthider's point of view, is it's a useful tool. Uh, we can litigate, we win a lot, we don't all, win all of them. Uh, as long as it's a useful tool, I think, uh, we're going to be there, that doesn't mean we're going to be contributing positively. People who are there now that are, don't work for the American Embassy there tell me that we continue to maintain a very high level of activity at the working level in the WTO, we go to committee meetings, we have ideas, we make, it's, nothing has changed at that level, it's up at the top a little bit different. Um, I think in its own way, uh, once again, he's, the President has focused attention on legitimate issues. And I think there's a lot of countries that would agree that some of the problems we've identified are actual, are real problems. Uh, and his, he's probably performed a useful service in identifying them. Whether his tactic is the right one to get them resolved, I, I don't know. My guess is probably not. Uh, but uh, it depends on how it plays out. He's certainly got people focused. He's gotten the, the EU and the Japanese moving. He's gotten the Canadians and the group of 13, I guess it is, talking moving. Talking about dispute settlement, so yes, and wheels there's a are conversation turning. on— uh, uh, It'll probably not come to a head until the ministerial in June of 2020, right? Not yes. this year. It's 2020 in in uh, Kazakhstan. So it's going to take a while, and the appellate body may disappear in the interim. Uh, so, uh, you know, I'm not sure this is the best tactic, but it may actually end up with a uh, some kind of resolution that would be constructive.
1: People actually talking about developing country status. That was kind of taboo for a long time.
3: So, who knows? Yes, and having the defense of the current system come from the Chinese and the Indians and the South Africans is probably... It's ironic. Not not, going to advance the the ball, uh, and and the (laughs) height of irony, but there it is.
0: Trey, guys, thank you. I really wanna thank Barbara and Marjorie. This has been awesome. I wanna thank our great live studio audience for being here tonight. Uh, This will be posted. Yumi, our amazing producer is here. Yumi, I think it'll be up tomorrow, right? Hopefully. Hopefully tomorrow. All right, well, thanks to everybody. Barbara and Marjorie, I hope you guys will come back sometime soon.
2: Anytime. It's
0: been great having you here. Thanks so much. Thank you. To our listeners, If you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the Trade Guys react to it. We're also now on Spotify, so you can find us there when you're listening to The Rolling Stones or you're listening to Tom Petty or whatever you're listening to. Thank you, Trade Guys. Thanks, you. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.